the book of Acts chapter 25. We're going to have a little bit of a recap this morning before we finish off uh, in chapter uh, 28. And so, um, how many of you in here have ever been uh, either close to a tornado uh, or close to a hurricane or in, in the middle of one? How many of you in here have ever been in the midst of a storm like that? Okay, so a handful of you. Uh, I, I have been uh, not only present for uh, hurricanes a couple of times while we were living in Florida, uh, but one time when I was a child, uh, I was probably in uh, second or third grade. We, we lived in Indiana, Elkhart, Indiana, for just a, a, a few years of our childhood or my childhood, and uh, we lived on a main road uh, in Elkhart, Indiana, and one night we had a really horrific storm. And uh, it was so bad uh, that uh, we've, in the middle of the storm, a tornado touched down just outside of our home. Uh, and it, it ripped uh, a tree out uh, by its roots uh, that was alongside the, the left side of our home. And uh, in the midst of doing so, the tree was probably about 70 or 80 feet tall, and it was about six foot around. And um, when, it, when it fell... Uh, it tore up not only the side of our home, but it also pulled the gas line completely out from our house. And gas, natural gas was leaking into our home. And uh, I remember in the midst of this storm, uh, my mom uh, asking where the lighters were so she could light candles because we had lost power. Now, you guys, right, you, you, you chuckle a little bit, but as, as a, an eight- or a nine-year-old kid, uh, in the midst of this storm, it was absolute and utter chaos, utter chaos. I remember us having to uh, get my dad up and get our, our other siblings up, and uh, we had a toddler and a baby in the home in the midst of this, and for whatever reason, uh, we couldn't get out our back door to our garage. We had to go out the front of our home where the tornado had touched down and run out and around our home to get into our vehicle for safety. The fire department had to come, and they had to cut our gas off. We couldn't live in our home for several weeks. And the area uh, where the tornado had touched down had destroyed many things. Uh, the hole where the tree stood was so deep uh, that my dad, sitting there in the back, who's over six foot tall, could stand inside the hole and you could not see him. Um, it, it, was, it had just done much damage. It destroyed our neighbor's house next door and fences and trees were down everywhere. Uh, it was probably the most terrifying thing that I have ever been in and remember still to this day. Everything that people say about tornadoes and about hurricanes is true. And as a child, to me, it sounded like a freight train was running next to our house 10 feet away from where we were at. It was so loud. I mean, you could hear the trees snapping. You could hear things being destroyed. Now, after that storm, um, we came out to see the damage and it had just unbelievably destroyed everything. And as a child, the only thought that kept coming to me was how this tornado had unbelievable power that I could not fathom. I, I just couldn't get my head around it as a kid. Now, I share that story with you this morning because that's how Luke describes the descent of the Holy Spirit on the church. That's how he described it. 
All the way back in week number two of this series, Luke said that the Holy Spirit came on the church like a mighty and rushing wind. Now, for those of you who don't remember uh, 24 weeks ago uh, when I shared that with you, I told you that mighty rushing wind was not really a great English translation of the the Greek words there because the Greek wording implied that the, the Holy Spirit came like a hurricane. He came like a massive storm and and fell upon the church. Now, this wasn't some cool, refreshing breeze that blew on the faces of the Christians and somehow filled them with sentimental religious vibes. No, the Holy Spirit came like a torrential wind that propelled the disciples to the ends of the earth. That's what he did in Acts chapter 2. And this weekend, this weekend, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul fulfilled his dream of getting the gospel to Rome some 2,997 miles from where the Spirit descended upon the church in the upper room. And that's going to bring us really to the end of the book of Acts, if that's really what you can call it, an ending. I'm going to show you today that the book of Acts truly never ended And that's because you and I are still writing it in such a way. And things didn't stop with Paul because it was never about Paul and his ambitions. It was about the Spirit of God and what he wanted to do in and through the church. That's why it never stopped. And so in these last couple of chapters, we're going to rehash a little bit. Luke is going to recount for us Paul's journey into Rome. And there are going to be four Um, four things that I believe that the Holy Spirit wants us to see about our lives and wants us to see as we continue this journey uh, that Paul and the apostles really started over 2,000 years ago. There's going to be four things that come to the screen and uh, some of them will linger a little bit longer on. And like I said, we're going to recap a little bit. So if you have your Bibles and you're not there, please turn with me to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. And for you note takers, I want you to write down these two words. The Bible tells us to live shamelessly. Live shamelessly. Now, I want to catch you up on the story here before we read anything in chapter 25. Paul left the Ephesian elders back in Acts chapter 20. And he gets to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, just like Paul had planned. And some of the Jewish authorities, they recognize him and they they go to tell the Roman soldiers that Paul had come there to start a political revolt, uh, which was, of course, we know, a lie. And when the Romans begin to question him, they realize that it's a lie, but they can't figure out what to do with him. So they send him to the regional governor. Uh, Do you guys remember Felix? We learned about Felix just a few weeks back. Felix uh, was the regional governor. They send him to Felix, and Felix can't figure out what to do with him either, so he just leaves Paul in prison for two years. Which, uh, by the way, I want to just pause for a moment. Imagine how hard that would have been for Paul. I mean, it's one thing to be persecuted. It's another to be forgotten in a prison cell for two years just sitting there. But as I told you a few weeks ago, don't be discouraged for Paul because it was during that time while Paul was in prison that he wrote some of the most well-known New Testament books, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. They were all written from the prison cell in which he sat. Now, some of you are maybe there this morning 
where you feel like you've been forgotten. Where you feel like you've been forgotten, like Paul. And I'm here to tell you that God's not done writing your story if you're still breathing this morning. Amen? God's not done. You know, eventually in the text, Felix is succeeded by this guy named Festus. And, and I know, terrible name. Um, I'm, I'm not... Um, anyone in here ever uh, heard of the Adams family? Yeah. Sinners. Dirty, rotten sinners. All... <laughs> Every time I hear his name, I just think of Uncle Fester. I don't, I don't know why. Festus takes over for Felix in the text. And um, Felix says, all right, we left this guy in prison. He's been there for two years. And Festus is trying to review his responsibilities as the, the new governor of the region. And he discovers Paul. And he wants to figure out why Paul is there. And so he calls Paul to stand in front of him. And the first thing that Paul says to Festus is, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. And that was an old legal precedence in that day and age where you could appeal directly to uh, the main one in charge. But the the problem with uh, appealing to Caesar was whatever Caesar said, whether good or bad, you had to abide by it. It didn't matter if it was against you or for you. Whatever he said, we we had to abide by it. And if you remember anything at all from reading the Bible, you will recognize and hopefully remember that the Caesars and Jesus' day and age and Paul's day and age, they were not usually paragons of fairness or even mental stability at all. In fact, the Caesar at this time where Paul is saying, I appeal to him, he was a man named Nero. Nero was probably the worst ruler ever in Rome. I've told you this before, Nero was a man who used to kill Christians and put their bodies on stakes in the courtyard of his home and light them on fire so he could have light in his courtyard. He was the same man who would take Christians into the Colosseum and for fun, for dinner parties, let loose tigers and lions to rip apart Christians in front of them for joy, for fun. That was Nero. Nero was like a powder keg of a Roman ruler. He was the one who walked around with emotional C4 strapped to his chest. That was Nero. And Paul's been in prison for two years, and he says, well, at least this way I can guarantee that the gospel gets to Rome because I'm going to go talk to Nero. I'm going to go. And so he goes, and he, he's going to appeal to Caesar, and, and before they ship Paul off, another governor of the region steps in. And we learned about him two weeks ago. His name was Herod. And he comes and he's like, I've got to hear what Paul has to say because I've heard about this guy. Now I want you to pick up in verse number 22 of chapter 25. So then Agrippa says to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow he said, you will hear him. And so Festus puts on this big fiesta, so to speak, and all the local authorities come and they air all their grievances against Paul. And Paul is the centerpiece and he's there defending himself. And Agrippa says, Paul, why do all the Jews hate you? Why do all the Jewish people hate you? Why are you in prison? Can't Paul be set free? He's done nothing wrong. And here's my point, church. Here's my point in in everything that I've explained. People constantly wanted to know what made Paul tick. Everyone wanted to know. People were saying, Paul, why are you in this condition? 
You don't have to be this way. But Paul's manner of life provoked questions. At every single turn, it provoked questions. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, whether here in person or watching online, our lives should provoke those same exact questions. No, we're not in the same circumstance as Paul. I realize that. But people should be able to look at you and I and say, I don't get why you live the way that you do. They should look at us and ask the question, why are you so generous? They should look at the Christian and say, why do you have hope in the midst of your pain and your problems? They should look at the Christian and say, why are you so patient? Why are you forgiving? Why? Why are you that way? But Peter said this in 1 Peter 3, he said, But in our hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you of a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter said this. After Paul was long gone, Peter said this. And Peter is supposing that the Christian's life provokes these types of questions. He's supposing that you and I are causing people to be so intrigued by how we live that they say, why do you do the things that you do? How do you even do that? Do you know that Peter and Paul apply that very concept in a number of places? And the very first thing that that they both apply that concept to is the way that you and I work. Paul said that our work should be done with such excellence and integrity that even when no one is looking, the people say, I can tell you work for a different boss other than money. People should be able to look at your your life and, and see how you handle disappointment and persecution and pain. And I know I talk about this a lot and you probably are annoyed by it, but I need you to understand that pain and disappointment are some of the best places for you to put the gospel on display. The best places. Do you know that anybody can be happy when things are going well? Anybody. But when you can have joy when things are not going well, you show that you've got a foundation that people in this world don't have. Do you know, church, what the difference between happiness and joy? Do you know what it is? Happiness is based on your circumstances. Joy is based on a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. You know, another display of the gospel in your life is the way that you give. And everybody started to panic because the pastor's talking about money. Another way that the gospel is shown in your life is by the way that you give. By the way that you give. Your generosity of spirit should provoke the question, why do you do the things that you do? Why do you live the way that you live? What you do with your money should lead people to ask you why you live the way that you live. 
You know, I was looking at a statistic. I, I know I told you guys that we were going to be gone all week long, but I could not uh, completely shut off. As a pastor, I struggle taking my pastor hat off when I'm out of the office. And so this week, someone sent me an article, a pastor friend of mine sent me an article, and he said, I know you're supposed to be taking a little bit of a break. And he said, but you have to read these statistics that came out. So I said, I'm going to read it. And so then I'm sharing with my wife, who, by the way, she's downstairs so I can share this. She goes, I thought you were going to take the week off. Um, She said it just like that and everything. Um, So I came across these statistics that someone sent to me this week, and I I was flabbergasted by them. They said that the average person in churches like ours, so churches of 100 people or less, the average person in churches like ours gives less than 2.5%. Less than 2.5% to the church in any way, shape, or form. That means missions. That means capital campaigns for building expenditures and improve. Less than 2.5%. You know what was even worse than that? The author of this article then proceeds to say that the average American gives less than 1.9%. Less than 1.9% is given to the work of God by the average American here in America that attends church on a regular basis, meaning three to four times a month they attend church. Do you think that that really provokes the question by our society? Why do they live the way that they do? Most people assume that Christians are just people who are moderately more moral, not people who live for an entirely different kingdom. I mean, our generosity is supposed to beg the question, not why are you a little more moral than me, but there must be an investment fund that you have that I don't know anything about. There must be some invisible kingdom that you live for that I can't see that causes you to do these things. And why? Why do you live for this invisible kingdom? You know, I heard something I heard something that helped me um, probably 10 or 12 years ago because uh, let me, let me just say, let me just back up and and say this, you know, I, I don't think, and and someone can correct me um, after the service if I'm wrong, but I don't think that I've ever stood on this platform and um, beat on giving in any way, shape or form. I, I don't think that I ever have. I believe that it should be before us and I believe that we should give because we see giving ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. But something, um, something happened about 10 or 12 years ago when my wife and I, um, I had been a Christian for a while and I, I understood tithing and, and giving above my 10% and I, I always got caught up on the numbers. I'm a numbers guy. I always got caught up on the numbers. And... I remember, um, I remember sitting in a church service and the pastor said that Christians who do what God tells them to do with their money, they're going to live three steps ahead of their peers who make the same amount of money that they do. And at first I said, why would I be living ahead if I don't have any more money? 
But then I came to the, the realization that he wasn't talking about I was going to live ahead some, somewhere financially where I was going to be making more money just because I gave more. He was saying that in my relationship with God, because I was faithful to my giving, God was going to bless my family in ways that I never thought or imagined that he could. And I've seen that. I've seen that in so many ways. I've stood on this platform and, and I have told you that when we lived in Florida and I went into ministry full time, I took three quarters of a pay cut when I went into ministry. I lost three quarters of my paycheck. I didn't know how we were going to make it. In fact, most months we were in the red going into the last week of the month and I had no idea how we were going to pay our bills. And for 10 years, God took care of it every single month. I don't know how, and I, I can't other than somehow supernaturally, he took care of our finances. That's the only way I know how to explain it to you. That's the only way. Supernaturally, he took care of my electric bill to ensure that we had lights and running water and power for our kids. Somehow, he made sure that our AC was running when it was 97 degrees outside and 100% humidity in Florida. I don't know how, but he did. Somehow there was enough money in the bank to put gas in our car so that we could take our kids to doctor's appointments and make sure that they were in church. When you are faithful in your obedience to what God has called you to do, God will bless that. Maybe not in the way that you think that he should, but he will do it in an abundant way that you could never think or imagine. He'll take care of you. And so, live shamelessly, Christian. Live shamelessly in a way that provokes questions. Which leads me to say this. I want you to, note taker, I want you to write down seize opportunities. Live shamelessly, seize opportunities. You know, at the end of Paul's message, at the end of Paul's message, Paul goes on this roll showing how all of the Jewish prophets have prophesied about the coming of Jesus. Now, I want you to jump with me to, to Acts chapter 26. I want you to see what happens here. I'm going to start reading in verse 27. And King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Paul is saying, I want every person who hears what Christ has done in my life and why I live the way that I do. I want all the people to come to him, but I don't want them to have to wear these shackles around their hands and feet. I don't want them to have to get beaten, but I want them to come to Christ because Christ has done something in my life. Paul's life is on the line here at the end of Acts. He's on the line where his, his head literally could be chopped off. And all Paul is thinking about is that I have an audience to proclaim the gospel so that people can hear. So that people can hear. Is that how you see your life? Is that how you see your life the last day of 2023 walking in to 2024? Is that how you see the profession that God has allowed you to be in? 
as an audience to proclaim the gospel. Uh, maybe, maybe you're in here and God has made you to work in the medical field in some way. And you're not in the medical field because you're good at medicine. You're not in the medical field because you, you can provide your family a way uh, to live. He, he's placed you in that area because it's a platform to share the gospel. Or maybe, maybe you're in here and, and you work in the school system in some capacity. You're, re, you're there for a reason. It is a platform for you to share the gospel. And I'm not telling you to go out and get yourself fired and do something unethical and, and your boss has, has already told you you can't share. I get that. But what I'm saying is that you have multiple opportunities to share the gospel by the way that we live and speak and react and not react and respond and live in the midst of our pain and our sorrow and our suffering, we have platforms. We all have platforms. If you're a student in here or a college student or you have a connection to the school system in any capacity, do you know that the, the children 18 and under are our single greatest mission field here in America. The single greatest. What if God's purpose, you teenager, college student, what if God's purpose is not for you to just get, get good grades or be great athletically? What if God is giving you a mission field to proclaim the gospel? Paul looked at every single situation, every one, whether advantageous to himself or not, he saw everyone as a platform for which he could share the hope of Jesus Christ. Everyone. And so my question this morning to the believer and follower of Jesus Christ is, are you doing that? Are you doing that? Are you looking at every situation, whether good or bad, as an opportunity for you to share the gospel with somebody else. Which leads me to the third thing that we see at the end of the book of the Acts is that you and I are called to embrace God's sovereignty. To embrace God's sovereignty. And we're going to linger here for just a moment because Herod and Festus put Paul on a boat and they're going to sail him to Rome. And that boat, if you remember, gets swept up in a hurricane and it blows out to sea and, and they're lost for an entire month. Nobody knows where they're at. As I read this story in, in Acts chapter 27, I can't, I can't help but think, man, can Paul just catch a break for a moment? He, he's been flogged multiple times. He's been stoned. He's been imprisoned. Now he's shipwrecked. He gets bit by a venomous snake. Like, come on, well, can Paul just have a break for a moment? And then this happens in Acts chapter 27. If you would turn there and we're going to pick up in verse 21. And Luke records for us, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred these, or this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no more loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground 
on some island. Now stop right there because I love this. I love this chapter in the book of Acts. Paul stands up in the midst of this hurricane, a month lost at sea, having not eaten for days, and he says, don't worry about it, guys. God's got to get me to Caesar. And because you're with me, that means all of you guys are safe. Because you're with me. Paul did not stand up in the midst of the entire ship and, and let the storm make him doubt God's control in the midst of it. It didn't. In fact, Paul saw the storm and saw God arranging opportunities for him in the storm to share hope. He saw each one and he took them. And you get to the end of chapter uh, 27 and you hear in verse 33, or 37, sorry, that there were 275 other people on that boat with Paul. Some of them were prisoners, just like Paul was. Some of them were soldiers. Other people were just traveling with them. Yet in this moment, all 275 people had one thing in common. They were terrified. They were terrified thinking that they were about to die. And Paul is standing here as a fellow traveler. And because he's a fellow traveler, he's given a uniquely compelling platform to which he shares the gospel. Christian, follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to look up here for a moment. God is not always going to shield you from the storm. And all God's people said, God is not always going to shield you from the storm. God is going to allow for you to go through the same thing that everyone else goes through so that you can show them what hope from within the storm looks like. You know, what, it, what it's like to experience the very presence of God in the midst of your storm. Do you know that demonstrating the presence of God in the midst of your storm is more powerful than calling to someone from outside the storm? It's more powerful It's on the cancer bed where you can say that my body is in pain, but my spirit is filled with hope. Because one day God is going to wipe away every tear from my eye. The pain that I'm experiencing right now on this earth is not even close to comparable to the glory that is going to be revealed to me. It's from the graveside of a child or a spouse. It's from the midst of your third year not being able to get pregnant. It's from the fourth miscarriage that, that you can say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Why? Because he heals all of my diseases and, and he forgives all my sins and he redeems my life from the very pits of darkness and he crowns me with steadfast love and mercy and he satisfies me with all good things. It's when you've been treated wrongly, when you've been forgotten like Paul in the prison, when you've been fired for doing something right, that you can proclaim to somebody else, though my father and mother have forgotten me, you, O oh Lord, take me in. 
You take me, you've lifted my head above my enemies. I don't know about you and I don't know about where you're at right now in this moment, but I am here as living proof to tell you that it is so much easier to proclaim hope as a fellow traveler than it is to call to people from a nice perch of safety while they're in the midst of a storm. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're in a situation because you messed up. You made some mistake and it's when you've been broken by sin that you can proclaim the sweetness of God's forgiveness and the healing power of his grace. Christian in here, do not buy into the lie that you need a perfect life to share the gospel with somebody else. Because the testimony of a fellow traveler is the most powerful testimony of all. Your, your testimony to Christ is more powerful if it comes from within the storm because in, in brokenness and in, in weakness and pain, Christ shows through. So I want to say something to you as your pastor. Contrary to the prosperity gospel that is over-preached in this culture, it is from your place of weakness, not your place of strength, that provides the best platform for your testimony. Why? Because you and I were not put on this earth to demonstrate our awesomeness. We were put on this earth to demonstrate God's graciousness. And so God allows you and I to be fellow travelers. Fellow travelers that experience hardships so that you and I can put on display God's hope that's inside of us. God, God controls even the angry winds and waves for his purposes. And let me also just kind of throw an addendum onto everything that I have just said. Because I think we get so messed up as Christians. And we have this, this mentality um, I'm going I'm to just say this. You do not need to step onto some platform here or anywhere else to share your testimony with Christ. You don't. You don't, need to, you, you don't have to get on a stage to tell somebody else what Christ has done in your life. And so I'm going to ask at this time that you would embrace the fact that God has sovereignly placed you in the lives of certain people so that you will proclaim him. He sovereignly placed you at your job. He sovereignly, and, and maybe you're in here like, I'm retired. Guess what? You still talk to people, don't you? You can still share the gospel. You still walk into a grocery store. God has given you people in your life so that you will sovereignly follow his sovereign plan to proclaim him to people who are lost and dying and hurting and on their way to hell. And so embrace God's sovereignty, which leads leads me to say this last and final thing, live sent. Live sent. Now I want you to jump with me to the very end of Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28 
And I'm going to read starting in verse 30. I want you to see how Luke ends this. He says, he, speaking of Paul, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the what? The kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. It's over. And all God's people said amen because the 26 weeks of studying the book of Acts has finally come to a close. It's done. Great. Yes. The series that seemed like it was never going to end is finally over. But what happens? What happens to Paul when he stands before Caesar? The Bible never tells us. The Bible never tells us what happens to Paul. Historical documents tell us, but the Bible never says. We know that Paul wrote in the book of Romans saying that he wanted to go to Spain and be the first person to ever preach in Spain. Well, does he make it? Does he go? I mean, Acts never tells us. It just ends in a cliffhanger. It's just over. And I'm not talking about like some old school cliffhanger where you can maybe figure out how the next season of your favorite show is going to start or how the last, the last episode of the season is going to... No, we're not told what happened to Paul's dreams and his aspirations. Do you want to know why we're not told? Because it's not about Paul and it's not about his dreams. That's why. It's about the Holy Spirit and the gospel. That's why. Do you know, from historical documentation, we know that Paul was eventually released. Paul made it to Spain. And when he gets to Spain, he's rearrested, brought back to Rome, and beheaded by Nero. He was killed. So why was none of that recorded for us? Why? why? Why don't we get to see another beautiful picture of a martyr who did everything right for Christ? Because it was Luke's way of, of saying to the Neros of this world, you can imprison and kill the Pauls, but you can't stop the gospel. Paul is dead, but the gospel remains. Paul is long gone, but the Holy Spirit is still working in people's lives. And so here we are, walking into 2024, about to become Mission Life Church 2,000 years later, and we believe that we've been put in Ionia for such a time as this. We believe it. Just like Rome, Ionia is an extremely strategic city. Do you know that Ionia has grown over five plus percent each year in the last nine years in a row? Meaning that we're having an influx of people that are moving. Why to Ionia? For multiple reasons. But people are, are moving in to this area. Young families are flocking here to this county. Families uh, of those who are placed in the prison system here are flocking here to be by their families. We have over 80 plus 
known homeless people in this area. And that number is rising every three to four months. We have one of the larger drug and alcohol problems here in Ionia County. And as I have learned over the last few months of working with Rave, the relief after violent encounters, domestic violence shelter here, the domestic violence rate in Ionia is rapidly and exponentially increasing on a month-to-month basis. And here we are, a church in the very seat of Ionia. Our neighbor is the mayor. Our neighbor on this side is the courthouse. The county jail is a block and a half away from here. Two prisons, three, soon to be two prisons that are active, are three miles, if that, from our doors. And I stand before you as your pastor saying that I wholeheartedly believe that we are supposed to make the gospel famous right here in Ionia. We're supposed to make it famous. We we want to reach people that nobody else is reaching by doing things that nobody else is doing. And so I want to just say this to you. I'm approaching three years here as the pastor and we've tried new things and not all of it has worked. It hasn't. Sometimes we, we've had to get back up and, and dust ourselves off and, and keep going. And I'm going to be really super honest with you. It's probably going to be the same way going into 2024 and 2025 and 2026 and and beyond. It's probably going to be the same way. I sit down with our our church board and and we talk through and and pray through things that that we have to come to decisions about. And sometimes we're going to make decisions and it's just not going to work out. And we're going to have to recalibrate and say, okay, God, maybe we just misunderstood you. Uh, tell us where we have to go now. Or maybe there's just such a, a, a shift and a change uh, that happens and we have to just recalibrate. And so I, w- I want to just say with all the love in the world that we are going to have to make shifts and changes along the way. We're going to have to. And I don't mean that we're going to stray uh, from this right here. Because that's not what I'm talking about. Anybody who knows me knows that this is, this is my, my foundation. This is my anchor. And I'm giving you permission that if I ever walk away from this, someone just slap me upside my head, okay? Yes? Say yes. Please, just agree with me. Yeah, I'm giving you permission to hit me. Church, we're going to have to make, we're going to have to make shifts and changes Along the way, as we, as we begin to see more growth, we're going to have to bring on more staff and we're going to have another pastor and things are going to change. And as modern missionaries, I'm begging of you as your pastor to have flexibility, to have grace. And I tell you this because it doesn't start with us and it doesn't end with us. You know that, that torrential wind 
that I was talking about at the very beginning, that torrential wind of the, of the Holy Spirit, where we see fill the church in Acts, and it scattered them to the very ends of the earth, and it wants to blow right here through Ionia County and beyond. It does. And so here at the very end of the book of Acts, I want to ask you to live sent in a few ways. I want to challenge you to live sent in a few ways. The first is I'm going to challenge you to live sent in your inviting. In your inviting. In 2024, I'm going to ask you to take risks in your invitations. I'm going to ask you to invite the neighbor or the friend or the coworker that you think would never come to church. Because it's going to do two things in your life. It's going to grow your faith in God and it's going to give God an opportunity to work in and through you. That's what it's going to do. And as I have said numerous times, the gospel life is not about you, but it's about the Holy Spirit's power in and through you. I was just thinking about this and this may seem um, silly and maybe even a little trite, but do you know that if every person in our church, if, if, if everybody was here, nobody was traveling, nobody was sick, Nobody was online. If we had every person here in our church, we'd have about 80 plus people here. If each one of you reached just one individual, and this may sound stupid, but our church would double in size. Just one in a 12-month period, if you reached one individual and got them to consistently come to church here, our church would double in size. Double, church. Do you you're like, well, yeah, duh, one plus one is two. That, right, but we don't think about it like that. Live sent in your inviting. The next thing I want you to do is to live sent in your volunteering. This year, I want many of you to start giving back to the areas that have been giving to you. People in this church have been a blessing to you, so be a blessing to them. Go and be a blessing to them. And I'm going to mention a couple of these specifically. We have lots of areas that need help serving thing, people to cover once or maybe twice a month uh, in different capacities. And one of those areas is our children's ministry. The, the little blessings that are downstairs right now being taught. I want to just say something to you. We don't babysit your children here. That's not that's not what children's ministry is about. Um, my wife, for the last two and a half years, and now Therese Berna, our, our new children's ministry director the last several months, the three of us sit down, and, and our purpose in children's ministry is to try and place an anchor in a child's heart that goes so deep that they won't drift that far away from it when they hit the insanity years known as middle school and high school. We want to place an anchor in the word of God so deep in a child's heart and life that it keeps them steady. The same thing with our youth ministry. Our, our kids ministry, our youth ministry is the tip of the spear for the most accessible, vital mission field that we have access to in our community. I want to share a story with you right near the end of our tenure in Florida. Um, 
we had a, an individual in our youth group whose father had, um, had passed away unexpectedly. Um, he, was, he was 16, almost 17 years old, junior in high school, uh, when his father was, uh, was killed in a car accident. And um, he was planning to go off to college, and his mom and his sister were going to, to remain in Florida. And, and he posted on Facebook after his graduation, and he, uh, in this post, he talked about a couple of us guys in the church that really invested into his life after his father passed away. And he said something, he said, but as much as I love and appreciate these men, they would be failures at their job if they were the ones that I remembered and thought about the most. Because these men pointed me to eternity. They helped me to realize that there was a mission before me in the next stage of life. And I'm going to walk through that mission with the leadership of the King of Kings and Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And as he read that, I could not help but think, Man, that's what church is. It's a father to the fatherless. It brings hope to the hopeless. It brings healing to the broken and, and the hurting. I love what Isaiah says in Isaiah 62, but the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted so that you are known God even more. The Christian is called to be that very voice in the lives of people here right now. You could be used in that way. A mother to the motherless. A father to the fatherless. You can be used in that way. And let me, let me just say this. You're not always going to get the opportunity to serve in the capacity that you want to. And that should be okay, Christian. That should be okay. But don't let that be the reason that you sit on the sidelines and don't get used by God. So live, live sent in 2024. Live sent in Mission Life Church in your volunteering. But also live sent in your generosity. I'm going to talk about money again for about 30 seconds, so just hang tight with me. Bored, don't freak out. We don't need your money. God does not need your money. But to, to launch new churches and reach new areas and, and train up new leaders and, and to send missionaries and, and pastors. That takes money. And all God's people said, Amen. it takes money to do all those things. And I'm not worried. I, I have been worried. I've even had conversations with Amy like, where are we at? How is this? What's it? I'm not, I stand here this morning and I told my wife, I can't be worried um, about money because the money's in the bank. And you're like, it's in the church's bank. No, it's just being temporarily held in some of your banks. The money's there and I will unashamedly stand before you this morning as your pastor and ask you, what has God entrusted to you? What has God entrusted? Are you living sent in your generosity? And if not, how will that change going into 2024? Live sent in your generosity. 
And then lastly, I want you to, I want you to live sent in your faith. I want you to live sent in your faith. I'm going to just make a statement, and if, if this applies to nobody in this room, that's completely fine. That's okay. Sometimes I stand on this platform, and I look out at the empty seats, and my mind races. Well, where's this person? Are they okay? Are they sick? Is there something wrong? Why are they not here? My mind runs through all of those things. And sometimes it can be discouraging to look out and see the missing people. I don't know if it is for you. It is for me. It's discouraging at times. And God reminded me of something as I was reading through this end at the book of Acts. And he, he was like, Josh, you've got to, you have to live sent in your faith. You have to believe me for the future. You have to believe me for the future. And so church, I'm asking you alongside of me to believe with us and, and pray with us for the future, for the future. I want you to pray for that person in your neighborhood or your, your work that would never darken the doors of a church. I want you to pray for them on your knees every single day until God gives you that opportunity if you're a parent or a grandparent in here, I want you to pray boldly for your grandkids and your kids that God would raise up the right now generation. That the right now generation would get it and they wouldn't leave church after high school. That they would be the generation that would continue to lead the charge in calling our nation back to Christ. That they would finish what we started. I want you, church, to believe and, and pray with us for the people in your life that are not following the Lord. Acts doesn't end because it's still being written. It ends in a cliffhanger because you and I are writing the next chapters. Paul got the gospel to Rome. Are you going to get the gospel to Ionia County? Paul got it there. In church, we don't know. We have no idea. We don't know if we're going to get it because we're still writing the chapters. But the spirit of God that was blowing in Paul's heart, it is available to you. He can write the next chapters through you. And so church, wake up. Wake up, church. Wake up. Pray up. Sing up. Read up. Pay up even. But church, don't give up. Don't give up, church. Don't let up. Don't, don't, don't let up. Don't shut up until every single person that you know has heard about Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you, I'm, I'm begging of you as your pastor, believe with us. Believe with us because I know that it is doable through Jesus Christ. I know, I believe, I believe that. I have the faith. 
to know that it is doable with Jesus Christ. And then I'm going to ask you to offer yourselves and your family as an answer to that prayer. Because being sent is not just for the professional Christians. I mean, how many times have I said in this series that the gospel went into new areas with everyday, average, ordinary people? And so the, the, those people who encounter the gospel, we have to talk about it. It cannot be that we, we walk out of here today having tasted the gospel and felt its love and understood its implications and then we sat silent. If you and I understand it, we're going to be whispering it in our children's ears. And we're going to be pleading with our friends and our family who are on their way to hell. We're going to yearn that the gospel would be spread to the darkest corners of our world. So either we are desperately trying to spread the message of the gospel or we've never understood it to begin with. And so I'm asking this morning as we close, are you ready to be missionaries sent by Mission Life Church? Are you ready? Because God's calling. Let's pray. God, we... God, we, we've come this morning and we've, we've gathered in your presence. And we recognize, God, that, that this mission, this mission that we've been talking about for weeks and weeks is not confined to the pages of history, but it's continuing still today. And so I'm asking, God, that you would give us the same resilience and the same trust that the early church had in you and your strength and your sovereignty, even in the midst of our storms. I pray, God, that we would see every situation as an opportunity to proclaim you, that, that, that we would understand that you have placed us in certain situations and circumstances as platforms for, for which a message of hope can go to a lost and a hurting people. And God, I, I pray that through our, our men's ministries and women's ministries and youth and, and, and student, wherever, God, I pray that you would teach us to live shamelessly. That our actions, that our, our attitude, that it would provoke questions from the people around us. As we walk into our workplaces, God. As we, as we are dealt disappointment and pain in our generosity and in our, in our lives, I pray that we would be living, walking, breathing testimonies that point people to our joy. And our joy found in you, Jesus. I ask that you would give us strength to seize every opportunity. And still, Lord, in us, this understanding of your word. Help us to know that you're in control. Remind us, Lord. And as we live sent... I pray that our hearts are stirred to take risks 
as we invite people, as we volunteer selflessly, as as we're generous in our giving, as we believe boldly for our future in, in the communities here. We pray that the message of the gospel would reach every single corner of Ionia County and beyond because, Lord, we were just faithful and obedient to you and your word. And as I prayed earlier, God, if there is anything in us that is hindering you from working, please reveal it to us. Lord, search us, as David said, know our hearts. Lord, I've just been reminded in my thoughts of something that Jeremiah spoke, the prophet Jeremiah. He, He said that we can ask and that in return we will see the great and mighty things that we know nothing about. And so, Lord, I'm asking... I'm asking that you would do great and mighty things in us first and then out into this community. I pray, Lord, for the the churches in this area that are not following you, Lord, that their leaders would come back to you, Holy Spirit. I pray that the leaders of this community, that are our neighbors in the the city hall and and in the the county jail and in the the prisons, Lord, in the courthouses, God, that, that... we would be so overwhelmed by the gospel that these leaders would begin to turn towards you. God, help us to walk alongside of them in, in the, that turning towards you. Help us to be a light in those very dark places. Whatever that looks like, Lord, help us to be prepared for it. God, I'm asking that you would raise up leaders right here in this church that they would be so full uh, of you and your word, Holy Spirit, that you would use them in great ways. And that all of this would not be a reflection of, of us as leaders, but God, it would be a reflection of your goodness in our lives. Lord, we, we are here to glorify you. And so we pray that as we walk forward into 2024, that you would be magnified and glorified by our worship And I'm not just talking about our singing, Lord, but by our very living. We love you, Lord. And we are so grateful that we get to be a part of your family, that you love us, you sustain us. And I ask and pray these things now in the mighty and the precious and the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen.